All right. I guess we should start. I just have to take care of a few things, and then we can get to the phone. But remember, the paper is due next week, right? Um, let me remind you of a few things about it, just so we make sure that we don't make mistakes. Um, it is an exposition paper, which again is like nothing else you've ever written. Um, response papers and opinion papers and research papers and all that kind of stuff, I assume. Uh, but this is not one of those things. This is simply a representation of an argument. We've been dealing with the structure of arguments throughout this class, right? We've been dealing with some kind of arguments we haven't gone outside of the book to understand anything about them. We've um, been spending the entire written argument Present the argument, you say this is within the argument, and you choose to present the argument. Um, what makes it a little tricky is that an argument is not so easy to represent. Um, if it was a book report, we could perhaps start on page one, then go to page two, then go to page three, and then run out of time, right? Which is what would happen if you go on books and deal with it isn't one thing after another. It's the structure of ideas in relation to each other. Uh, if we think of an argument as a structure, then we immediately have to see what we've been saying all the time this semester, namely that some ideas in an argument are more important than other ideas in the argument. Uh, we were, when we did field science, we saw that the distinction between making and knowing was a pretty big idea. Idea in X is 
preventing the philosophers of containment, right? And then whatever the architect finds out there is just going to go for the time. I'd love to think about how the system runs. You can't be wrong, right, about the architect finds out there. Um, if you think one is ideas the most important, we present the argument through it and see what happens. Maybe it is the most important. Maybe in the art, in the act of arguing that it is the most important, we discover that it isn't important. That's a positive result, believe it or not, because we found out something uh, that meant that you were wrong, which is always a positive result in these things. So even being wrong is okay if you're trying to actually do the representation of architect finds it. There's no right or wrong about that. Um, I gave you a list of things not to do. I've discovered that they impede or obstruct the writing of this kind of paper. Right? We're dealing with an argument that is structure, so we want relations, not ends, or also or in addition. All the other ways that students manage to evade the, the obligation to make relations between things. These words put things next to each other, they do not interrelate them. Now pronouncing man and wife is a problem now that I think about it. I now pronouncing man and wife with respect to each other. <laughs> because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense, right? Now I think about it. So beware of ands, all right? Um, no quotes. Because you don't learn anything by quoting it to something that's already there. So the thing is to put it in your own words as far as you can. Uh, no examples. These are things that students tend to replace the obligation of writing the paper with. What if they are our own examples? No, that's the, exactly the one not to use. Oh. Yeah, no examples. Okay. The phrase, for example, don't use it. So we're kind of just like representing the argument as it is. Yes. Instead of like, okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, not applying it yeah. to something, okay. right? Like, let us look at hip hop under this example. Yeah. Okay. yeah, no, no, okay. no, no, no. That is the kind of paper that people sometimes ask for. But, um, I don't know. I'm not interested in that. These tend to replace the uh, the students writing of the paper. Right? The things that happen with the examples, by the way, is the student says something, figures out they can't say well, so they say for example, and then they expect the example to say for them what the thing is an example of. That doesn't work. Already explained what the thing is an example of. You don't need the example. And if you haven't explained what the thing is an example of, the thing is not an example. Right? It's not an example of anything. So avoid those. Um, or just don't use them at all. Uh, what else is there? No, just some other notes. No adjectives. I mean, this comment last week uh, reminds me that the authors use adjectives. So I guess I should say no personal adjectives. <laughs> use their adjectives when they use them and they're relevant, right? Uh, but you can't use your own adjectives to characterize what they say. Um, and all one paragraph. That's really it, right? Not the whole usual spiel. Why all one paragraph? Because it's all one representation of that um, paragraph. And, well, there's a number of reasons why. When you use small paragraphs, to leave out the sentences that make the relations between the ideas. You don't do that when you write one paragraph. You write 
can find yourself having to relate more to each other in some paragraph. It's very hard to manage a very long paragraph, by the way. It's hard to manage it because it's hard to keep all the relations explicit to each other. But that's the very idea, is to keep the relations explicit. So one paragraph will focus your attention on keeping it all one paragraph. Uh, do doesn't make relations, but because makes a relation. Thus makes a relation. Therefore makes a relation. Those are actually names, names of relations. There are other kinds of relations too, but those are words in England that have a group for you. Even moreover makes a relation because it says the same thing over again with emphasis. Um, indeed, actually, is a, is a way of introducing a repetition, by the way. Fine. Repetitions are not, are not to be avoided. I think sometimes uh, English teachers sometimes say, if you cut out repetitions from English literature, you'd have nothing left. <laughs> There's a lot of them just do a lot of repeating. Um, I mentioned I was looking at Shakespeare's play, Troilus and Cressida. And the one idea that all actions are vain over and over and over, it's like every scene. Um, so he doesn't mind repeating and he some expertise in these matters. Uh, do make relations explicit? Uh, what else can I try to do? Do, do use the magic semicolon that is. Um, it sounds, in other words, like Jill San says making is different from knowing. And Jill San says that, uh, what does Jill San say? says that matter individuates, semicolon. That is, and then say what it means, right? It's not enough to say that he says matter individuates. You haven't convinced me that you know what that means, really, until you actually look to amplify it, right? The magic semicolon that is enables you to make an amplification of what you've already said. And amplification is good not just for the sake of my understanding it, but for the sake of your understanding it, right? So that you don't deceive yourself that you've understood a phrase or an idea that you haven't understood if you've used words that don't really mean anything to you until you, until you ask yourself to amplify it and say what it means. That's a very good exercise, by the way, because we tend to use words to cover, uh, cover um, ignorance of what we mean, actually, to be honest. I'm just out there reading the uh, posters for the upcoming lectures. We ought to read those things, by the way. Uh, someone is giving a lecture on the relationality between blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Relationality. What is that? <laughs> Relations are already abstract, right? Because you can't really see them, I suppose. So they're already provided by the mind and not by the senses. So what would an abstraction of a relation be? It would be a relationality, I suppose. But I have no idea what that means. And with, uh, if I if you were a student, I would say, use the magic semicolon that is, and then you will understand what it means. But until you do that, you can you can cover or disguise from yourself that you don't really know what you're talking about. Um, it, that's the antithesis of this kind of paper. This kind of paper is only good for the students because it gets them to uh, it gets them to have the experience of knowing what they're talking about. Actually, <laughs> that's the whole educational takeaway. 
Now that I think about it, uh, it's, not, it's not a portfolio piece. It's not going to win you an award or get you a scholarship or get you published or make you famous. It's just going to give you the experience of having to articulate a complex series of ideas in a way that you are satisfied that you've understood. And that doesn't sound like much, but if you can do that, you can save yourself three more years of college and go out because that's what, that's what the, in a sense, that's the goal of a liberal arts education. So that's the paper. Are we, we're just arguing, or we're just representing one argument? Or, okay, so it's not like arguments in relation to each other? No, it's just one argument. Um, and it could be any one of them, not uh, the most usual sign-up using for example. But, you know, we did free, we did Matthew Arnold, all those things are available. There are manageable size, right? Um, I think you can do the Broadville essay or to study a rigorous study that um, is all in there, but it's, a, but it's all in there explicitly in the other essay, so that might be the better choice, but anyone that you want to do with it, there is no reason. Are, yeah. are you concerned with, like, as long as you represent it? Yeah. yeah. What I'm really concerned with is that you try to do it, that you try to do the best you can. one good sentence would be worthwhile. And I'm not kidding, because I've just spent the last week trying to write one good sentence, and it's not easy. It just keeps getting longer and longer, and I'm not sure that's the right way to go about it. And the Times will tell you she's been trying to write a couple of good sentences now for as long as I've known her. She has <laughs> It's hard to do, but when you, when you really start reading yourself and trying to really see what you mean and whether, this, whether the words are in the right order or the clauses are in the right place, that's a very valuable thing to do and it's not easy to do. It's better to do that than to just blabber, right, for the sake of that. Don't worry about length. It's a small class. No one's going to look at me on it, right? So feel that, the, that all the other feet that have been on your neck when they've been writing papers are off and just try to do the intellectually respectable thing and, res and represent an argument that someone has taken a great deal of pains to make as clear as you could without other benefit than because he thinks it's worthwhile for you to hear it. That's really what Dolo's philosophers have been doing, actually. You know, you say, what, what was their motive, right? Their motive was to make clear an idea that they thought other people should hear because they thought it was worth hearing. That is really all it is. Um, they didn't do it for the money. They didn't do it for the fame, right? None of these guys, <laughs> they did. They were, they, they were really pursuing the wrong thing, right? Because the, they thought the ideas were valuable, which is the same reason why anybody says something. Uh, and so, in a, in a way, you know, the honest thing is to, is to do things with honor by trying to represent their ideas as accurately as you can and with as much uh, respect for them as, as they actually do deserve. You know, there's really nothing else to say about it. Uh, it's funny, I can't remember, I think it's Colin didn't say it. No one says something out loud unless they feel that it should, unless they feel that they have something to say, right? And I know that isn't true because there's a lot of chatter with nobody saying anything. Uh, but it happens in class a lot. The student starts talking because they feel like they have something worth saying, right? Otherwise, 
and start talking. And well, this dude is going to listen to it. It's poetry, right? Uh, but how did that exactly translate into a method of investigating individual works, right? That would be the question. Just to, that's the philosophical background. But what, how did the method come out of it? Well, in a formal analysis, you go back to Hobbes. <coughs> the note of C sharp is used in a number of millions of different pieces of music. Right? And you can go to the piano and hear it as much as you like. But <laughs> in a melody, right? It takes on a function that's something that is all the parts are reciprocally determining and deliberate and, and delimiting each other. You know, something that is self-intelligible. To find out what it means or to understand it, you to understand anything in it, you look to all the other things in it. And to understand any other thing in it, you look to all the other things in it. Right? You don't look outside it, you look inside it. Because what the thing means and what the thing is and what the thing is understood to be by all the other parts in relation to each other. Now, when, when all the parts have the relation of mutually and reciprocally determining each other, there's nothing outside of them required to make those determinations and delimitations. You get something that's a whole. And in formal analysis, you start with the assumption that the work you're investigating is a self-intelligible work. It may not prove to be a self-intelligible work, but you can't know that until you 
to actually come and investigate it. You may never actually be able to do it. So we have parts and self-intelligible organisms, right? And they're related to each other in a way that they are tell in advance what the parts are or what the nature of the whole is. Right? It would seem, seem to be obvious that the parts of the whole melody are the, are, the, are the notes. But apparently that's not so obvious actually because there are philosophers who would tell you that the melody is the part. Right? That there are no parts to it because it's only apprehended as a whole. But by part we don't mean the thing that we can break it into. What's the parts of a painting? Well, you might say the brush strokes, right? But then you come to a polyp, and there are no brush strokes. So then you're in the crazy position of saying it's not a painting. Which would be wrong. It would just be a painting with different parts, right? Same thing with a Morris Lewis. A poem, what are the parts? Well, the words, obviously, but the words don't exist apart from each other. They exist in sentences. So maybe the phrases are the parts of them. Maybe the rhythm of the parts of them. We don't know what it's not. And you certainly don't know what the nature of the whole is until you actually see it. Constitutes a whole for Shakespeare is very different from what constitutes a whole for his contemporary Ben Jonson, for example. Uh, there's a novel by Goya uh, called Wilhelm Meister's Blondelzar, which the author himself is, is considered sage in these matters, defined as a whole without an ending, which is actually quite a good description of that particular literary form. But that's not the kind of whole that another author would make, right? Uh, so holes are, are variable. We don't know what they are in advance, and we can't tell what the parts are until we start to investigate it. So here again, this isn't a problem, but this is, this is sort of a way of looking at the problem that Bellemare faces in his rigorous studies. How do you know how to investigate something that you don't know, right? Aha, uh -huh. that's a big question. How do you know what method is appropriate to investigate something whose nature is unknown to you, right? Well. That's a good question, actually. And there's no one answer to it, right? Because the, the, what you want to do is discover the method of inquiry into the thing uh, the, uh, while you're investigating the thing. So there's a reciprocal back and forth between what constitutes the appropriate method and the results of the questions you've been asking of it. Uh, so the idea of finding, you have to find the method, right? You have to find the, the structure of interrogation. Um, you start off with what's known to you by experience. In other words, you look at it, you read it, you read it again, right? You do that thing that Zettelmeyer sometimes says, which is you kind of wait for an opening, right? It's really what it is. It's what Aristotle would call an aphoria, a no way in. We have to find a way in, right? We have to start the inquiry. Uh, and you just start by looking for a way in. What you hope to do is get to what's known in itself. In other words, it's known not by experience to you personally, but it's known objectively uh, in, in the nature of the thing. You could call it known objectively. That arrow is what we call an inquiry. Uh, and that's the method that we're always looking for in, in, in any young book. Right? Um, just very briefly, since we have a little bit of time here, um, this method differs from other methods. Ways you can investigate works of art, or been taught or assumed works of art investigated, 
is by thinking that the intelligibility of the work lies in some kind of context. I, I put it in quotes because I'm quoting. <laughs> I'm quoting every teacher you probably ever had talking about it. Um, but the context is the most important thing. I'm also putting it in quotes to show that there is no such thing as a context apart from some kind of philosophical position. You can't show me a context, right? Not like a fact. It's a construct, it's a construct of discourse, right? Di different thinkers construct context differently. So context can have many different meanings, but than any term in a book in the philosophical universe. Um, not that the teachers treat it that way. They always assume that the context is already known to them. How they came to know it, they never say. How anybody came to know it, nobody ever says, by the way. And that's a very significant uh, oversight there, because it shows you that maybe these things are not objective and thoughts are a little bit of their second line meaning. Um, there's a kind of philosopher or a kind of historian who would say the context of any work is the historical epoch uh, in which it came into being. Um, you've heard of historical epochs like the Renaissance and so forth, uh, the Baroque. But no one ever asks, how do we know there was such a thing as the Renaissance? Well, that's a good question because half the historians of the world deny the existence of historical epochs. How do you know one exists is a very good question because you can't see it, right? If you're in one now, you don't know it. Right? It's not like it suddenly happened. Um, someone else might say the, the, uh, the context is an antecedent event. The event can be psychological, can be sociological, can be historical, right? In the aftermath of 9 11, irony died. <laughs> Did I ever hear that? That was supposed to be the end of irony, 9-11. I guess not. You know, I guess it started up again very shortly thereafter. But that would be an example of, I'm making fun of it, of course, but why not? Um, that would be an example of an antecedent event being over. The, the, the artworks that result are the cause of the effects of the antecedent event of 9-11 and the way the artist understood it. Usually these things are psychological, uh, but they're also sometimes economical. Sometimes economic motives or economic causes are used for works of art. And finally, you can say the context is new. Um, in other words, all knowledge is conditioned by a frame of reference. You are the frame of reference of your own knowledge. So whatever you say about the poem is the context of its intelligibility. That's the actual justification for making interpretations, by the way, and perhaps misinterpretations. There is no objective knowledge. There is only knowledge created from um, all these people, I'm making fun of them, but they are they're, they're actually behind them all stand very powerful philosophical patrons. I don't mean to demean them. It's only in the vulgar, watered-down version that you get in colleges that they become reprehensible. But I think they are reprehensible is rather strong word. Uh, contemptible, despicable, something like that. <laughs> I mean, it might look mild. Um, but notice that they would have objections to this method. Uh, and they're not the same. Uh, here we're going to say the work is its own context. These people would say, what you're calling a whole is actually part of a larger whole. So its intelligibility is not in itself, but in the larger whole that it's part of, namely the historical epoch. Uh, these people would say, the relations that you say cause the work to be what the work is are effects of a prior cause. They're not actually causes to be taken into 
society, what you're calling objective knowledge doesn't exist. And in fact, your inquiry is not an inquiry, but a projection of your own prejudices onto the world. Right? That's a very powerful exception. The answer would be something like, we're just making a distinction between the art object and history. Historical inquiry is a completely different activity. It's a worthy one, and maybe it has justifications, but it is not the same one as an inquiry into the nature of how a work of art exists. Furthermore, you might go on, how did you get your idea of the historical epoch in the first place? You must have examined works to determine what the epoch was. So if you did that, you must, have, you must agree that there's some intelligibility to works prior to your knowledge of the epoch. Right? That makes sense. Before you knew there was an epoch, you had to, dis you had to discover there was an epoch. How did you discover it? By examining works. Those works must have been intelligible up to a point without your understanding of the epoch, because you came to the understanding of the epoch through the works. That's a devastating objection, by the way. <laughs> I just want to point that out. Um, Real historical epoch philosophers would say does not ground their understanding of epoch on the examination of works. But the art historians do, and that's why I'm pointing out that way. Um, as for the cause and effect thing, um, the answer would be something like, okay, we pretend to know the causes of the work and that we can understand the work without understanding the psychology of the artist. Right? That's Can you explain why that brush stroke is there, or that color is being used, or that word in a poem is in that place, not another place? Because if you can't understand, if you can't explain it by reference to psychological causes, you haven't explained anything according to your own understanding of what an explanation would be. In other words, your causal, your causal explanation doesn't doesn't explain the effect that we have in front of us. That's one way. The other way to handle it is to say, if the psychology of the artist will require to understand the work, well, we're in trouble because Shakespeare must be completely unintelligible because we know nothing about him. Okay? Nothing. We know he's born, we know he died, but that's not what they're talking about, right? Everyone's born and died. Um, we don't understand anything. We can't understand anything about the great cathedrals. We don't know who made them. Not only don't we know their psychology, we don't know who made them. While we're on the subject, we can't understand the Bible because we don't know who wrote it. No less understand our psychology. Because, you know, Job is not really the author of Job. <laughs> you know, and Matthew is not really the author of Matthew. But even if we knew that Matthew was the author of Matthew, who's Matthew? Nobody knows it. I'm an expert on the subject, I can tell you. We know nothing about the Bible authors whatsoever psychologically. And yet those works are intelligible. So it must be that some intelligence. There being no objective knowledge, this brings up the bite the bullet and say, there is. <laughs> I'm sorry, but there is. Um, and not everything is mediated to a frame of reference, and that's just a philosophical difference that you just can't, you can't answer because they're two different philosophical universes. Um, it's funny, though, that people stop thinking that when they stop talking about art. Um, if I said to you, you have to understand, to understand 
Euclid's proof that the angle inscribed in a semicircle is a right angle. You have to understand it's called Greek And someone might say, no, you don't, Dan. So you just have to understand the terms in which the proof is conducted. Isn't that obvious? Some might have to say, we have to understand the psychology of the author. No, you don't. Why would you think that, right? I mean, it's right there, no, 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 mathematically. You're just interpreting it. No, I'm not. I'm not, right? So it's funny that works of art are the only ones that are subject to these sorts of objections, really, as if they were somehow a class of things that are less knowable than mathematics or science. But in formal analysis, you hold that they are as knowable as those things. Um, and if you don't think so, you're just in a different universe philosophically, right? That's all it is, philosophical difference. I'm not saying it's the right one, it's just the philosophical predicates of the, of the method. Right? Okay, that all makes sense. All right. Um, Let's do it. <laughs> let's let's see if we can actually pull it off, right? Now remember, we just want to go from what's known to us by experience, which we will shortly have. If I would read the pose. We want to try to go from what's known to us by experience to what is better. So shall I read it, and then I'll ask, then I'll ask a question. I don't, I'm not a good reader of poetry. One of the reasons why I'm conducting a long war against the practice of reading poetry out loud. Um, I'm losing that war, by the way, despite my beautiful sentences. So I'll read it, and I'll read it like the way they do with poetry readings. Dover Beach. <laughs> <laughs> they always read the title. <laughs> But I won't do that. All right. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land. Listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling their return of the high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound a thought hearing it by, by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams so various, so beautiful, so new, that's really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. What's the poet doing?
keeps it open to anyone here, right? So I'll come one line back. Oh, the sound. Yeah, the sound. Um, in the imagery and the sound? Like what in the imagery? Something is moving there. I don't, we don't know exactly what this is a skip. And it's in hearing it that we should access it. So we find in the sound of thought, when we hear the grating of our pebbles. Um, in the sound of thought? Say so here. Yeah. You're on the sound? Um, there's also part of hearing the um, fear 
Have something to say in a minute about it because I love it too. So the uh, the the, the sentence, I mean the isolation of that word.
This is our way in. None of these patterns occur in any other poem than this one. Right? So when we see these patterns, we're seeing not something general about poetry, but something specific to this poem. The word long means like two senses, or is it only two senses? How many times the word used in the poem actually? The long is probably for more. Sophocles long ago. Is there any other use of it? This is a very dull wiring. We establish some things legitimacy by the virtue of its joining a pattern. If it's just one thing outside of patterns, we can't really characterize it. Characterize it. Yeah. All right. 
Mark said. It would, have, it would have to be the eternal note of sadness, yeah. no? Yeah. Um, any other eternal, well, anything that, yeah, but go on. Any other things that continue? Or that. Eternal note of sadness, but you can't always hear it. Yeah. Unless you listen. <laughs> Wait, I don't think it's that you can't always hear it, but you don't always hear it. You don't always hear it. And it comes into thought, right? So you don't always think it. Hearing thought across the story. Hearing and thinking. Or does hearing bring in the thought? Hearing brings in the thought, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they're not the same activity, right? So you hear it. Maybe you always hear it, but you don't always think you hear it. You know, I don't know about that. Any other comments? Anything else?
that's interesting because we have the drawing roar, right? But we also have the tide flinging the waves coming in too, right? So. Is, is, oh, but that's a little bit different. The light is gone. Oh, gleams and it's gone. Let's just let's just try to pattern that. Let's just see. Are there any other light things? Tranquil night, this is clash by night, right? So they're two different. There's a clashing night and there's a tranquil night. Yeah, we haven't connected anything. We're just looking at the pattern, right? Is for black, yeah. Melanin, we still use it too much for the skin pigment. Yeah, in, in the sense that when you mentioned light is gleam and is gone, then it has to be a dark, right? Yeah. Because that's what they call it light. No, it's not just melanin. Any other dark? What is the light on? Dark or mine? Darkling plain. Darkling plain. That's a famous line. I gotta forget. Darkling means night. Means dark, by the way. Doesn't mean becoming dark. Another way of saying dark. Flash by night. There's a lot of nights, actually. No, that has a gleam. It's glimmering and it's gone. Okay. Yeah? Roar has two meanings. It starts as the grating roar of pebbles, and then in the end, it's the roar of, I think it's the, uh, the long, long, yeah. long, 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 He says, let us be true to one another. Both are law, it's human struggle. Um, 
and the world has no love. Come to the window. Could be a dog. Fine, fair enough. Could be a dog. Could be a dog. Listen. Listen. <laughs> yeah. See a face. Sophocles, my dear. He could be talking to. Well, no, that's stupid. Never mind. No, I, I have a feeling it's a person because it's us. Let us be true to one another. Okay, actually, I think that's okay. Um, you wouldn't have to say it to a dog, because a dog would always <laughs> dog is always true to one another. Yeah, exactly. uh, in what relation they stand. interesting speculation, right? Because everything that the person who just hears him say, we hear him say. Right? So that that's not exactly and that does make raise that possibility. Time, past, present, or now, future. Or eternal node, yeah, something like that, right? Whatever is said to be eternal would be eternal for us too, and we would also be part of a present that is, is, so to speak, his saying is the past. So we haven't flowed in breaking the frame of the poem, so to speak. Faith is tricky because what's it mean? I mean, what does it mean in the poem? Right? Yeah, what does it mean in the poem? I mean, I know what it means in the dictionary. Well, we know that the sea of faith is different than the, the sea of the infinite. Yeah. Um, and that the sea of faith was once born on the earth shore, but it's not. Now it's just you just hear it. What's the meaning of the metaphor? No, we don't. I shouldn't say that. The sea of faith is different from the sea of wherever they're at. I guess the North Sea and the River Dover. So I guess it's the English Channel, actually. Now that I think about it. Yeah, you also get, you have to touch on the, the two shores, the French and the English, because that's in the uh, French coast and the cliffs of England. French coast and the cliffs of England would be that. So it is sort of like um, uh, the as towards one is the flow from the 
if that's actually true. No, I don't mean that for as like it's oh. completely equal, but the water is between them, and we know the water is going back and forth. And so there's also the coast. I don't know what to make of the French angle. I mean, the only thing that it's I think it's significant that there are two places that there's like a, a dualism in that way. There are two different places, but that's like the only thing I can well, see as significant. Straits connect bodies of water, but here the water was providing the. That's not bad. Straits connect two bodies of water, but not two bodies of land. Full, like crazy. That's fair. Is it full? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. Moon it says lands. the tide is full. The, the tide is full. But the tide can be full when the moon isn't even visible. Shingles means beaches, right? Pebble beaches, actually. So when it was full, there was one world, and now that it's empty, or whatever it is, Denmark, France, and England, and Northern coasts as opposed to... That's okay. So, so, oh, wait a minute, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. <laughs> yeah. So whatever the Sea of Faith did, it, it made singulars, right? Which is what that singular nouns. So it made things. Is there a word for it in the poem? Um, round. Round. Round isn't bad. 
full won't quite do it. Are they describing the moon or the single thing? The thing that the, the, act of, the act of faith that made things into singles. I like full too, but I'm not sure we can do it. Um, one. Yeah. Now the edges are vast and drear, right? And naked. Not so good. You know, the fact that ignorant armies are flashing by night sort of is the not one thing, not oneness. Oh, I guess we can do it. Well, I don't know how we're going to do it. Flash is kind of a sonic word, no? Am I making that up? Sonic word. starts talking about sadness is the beginning this is the last line of the first stanza so what between this come to the window sweet is the night air and the sadness at the end what what all of a sudden becomes sad because that's that is an eternal sadness that lasts for the remainder of the poem and until eternity so what evolves in those like what seven lines yeah that's a, that's a to scale that question up how do we get from stanza one to the rest of the 
be that'd be one way to do it, right? No, but that that means the transition doesn't tell us how it happens, right? Um, I think that would be okay. How do you get from a parent's reality? I guess would be. I think it's listening, because as soon as you as soon as you get listened, then you get the roar, then you get the the, the eternal um, the sound. That that that's really the the place where it all shifts. I think. And then you get the note of sadness. Yeah. You have to hear it. Notes are tremulous, right? So the vibrato, right? Yeah, you have to. I don't think you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Notes move. Maybe this is true. Maybe things that are heard. Things that are heard are moving, and things are moving. Being full at the moment before it begins to ebb. So there might be a way in which this is a pause. 
Robert Paul is not for Hypothesis, right? It's hearing and moving the same thing, or some related to each other. But I think I think it, when you get whatever it is, it's thinking that it, that it comes out of it. The thought that occurs that makes the relation between the things. Is it too silly to kind of like look at this on more of a macro? levels in terms of structure. So looking at like ebb and flow and then you have sweetness and sadness and, and those things that seem, I mean, I know you said antithetical, but can we like yeah, do that? I don't know. Because um, we're, we're doing like, I mean, I, I'm sort of saying stillness to movement that's like noun to verb or something. I don't know. But I feel like it'd be interesting to see it in terms of generalizations. Like, like instead of looking specifically at the words, like I don't have, I'm not, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> but I'm just saying that it might be interesting. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the verb that's not nouns to verbs because they're noun, they're verbs that don't move, state of verb, but is or stand. Yeah. Right. That don't have a. What makes the thought come into his mind? You say hearing, sound does, but why that thought? Because of what they are doing. Which is what? The sound is, is, cueing, a, is cueing a thought. Why that thought? Wait, no. The sound is uh, representative of an action. And the action is what cues the thought. Why that thought? Because of what the action is, which is the ebb and flow of the waves. Right. Well, but why, is, why do we go from sweet to sad? Because um, before, because the sweet was before he heard the pebbles. It's going to be, it's going to be okay, actually, <laughs> because when I'm thinking about, should I, should I share with you? No, no, you should. I should. I was dismissing something I was thinking. You know, because I've repeated this line to somebody a thousand times, I sometimes overlook the true meaning of it. Let us be true to one another. <laughs> why that? Why those words? Because. Because. Oh, okay. because what? They're not. Or because at least it's in doubt. Yeah. True. Yeah. Is it in doubt or is? The, the let us gets us to the to the, the, the dubious thing, or just in, it's not a good letter. It doesn't yeah. say, "Oh, we are true to one another." Or we have been true to one another, or we will be true to one another. It's 
whatever that phrase is, conditional or something. It's not is it possible that it's not a reflection of what their past was, but only their relation to the rest of the world, which is not true to one another? That could be. But it's also... Because there's nothing about them in this poem. Uh, but, but see, what we're saying is that the, the, the argument that, that true... Not ebb and flow. Everything exactly. ebbs and flows. Say true would be to stay the same. Exactly. That's what the poem does. Does what? It, when you're talking about, you know, it goes from seems to really, because it's being true to itself, suddenly. Does that make any sense? No. True would seem to be like stand and is. I'm not saying it's true, it's like stand and is. Um, in other words, Yeah, true, not truth. Yeah, true. True, true to one another, a special kind of truth. One might argue um, that, in fact, they have been true to one another this entire time. The only thing that's making him realize that there are things in the world that are not true to one another it are these pebbles. So before, the reason things are sweet, sweet as the night air, sweet as our relationship with one another, so to speak, because we have been true. All of a sudden, the sound of the pebbles come, the ebb and flowing comes, the realization that things are not true, let's be true to one another continually. But as a projection to the future, it's a let us, not a we will. It's not so much the pebbles are doing it, it's the idea of yeah. ebb and flow. Hmm? Just, tremble, tremulous. Right. You're putting true in comparison to ebb and flow. Well, I was kind of going there. I agree with you. Oh, I'm asking. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm like, I'm asking. Like, well, if you're putting true in comparison to ebb and flow, then it just true become stillness? Or, yeah, that's. Yeah. It has to be movement. Why? Because we only get to the truth when we're moving in the poem. I only get to the thought of melancholy when we're thinking. Yeah. You only get it in flow if there's movement. So the um, I, I kind of agree with that too, but they're not together at the beginning of the poem, right? Because she has to come to him, come to him, right? I don't know what she was doing, but it's not like at the window, love, let us look out. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. Really 
much of a trend. This Yeah, no, I, it was one starch, and now it is something else. That kind of indicates that they weren't true, or that they haven't been true yet. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. See, what I'm trying to do here is account for the, the, the succession of the thoughts by other indications that are not direct. Um, he doesn't say. Know, love would go one time through to one another. Yeah. You just had a fight, you come to the window, maybe whatever it is. In other words, it, it, it can't, it can't be, you don't do that in other problems to sort of generalize. But what he does tell us is the situation can't be irrelevant to what the rest of the poem is. Right? So they come to the window, that it's that, 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 that incredible leap between the third and fourth stanza, which really says, follow my mind here. Don't follow the words only, right? Follow what I'm thinking, but those words are being said. Um, and it seems like a leap because most of these kind of follow along with what's causing them to think these things. We're not going to get the same thing. Yeah. Another significant word, ah. I mean, it, it's it's a sound. First of all, it's not a word, right? But it's it's got to be what what precedes your saying ah? <laughs> you know, not not you know to see a face, not really a drawer. <laughs> ah, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good word. Um, yeah, I guess that's sort of the question. I'm trying to do is trying to say what precedes the ah is a consciousness of how can we continue to be, how can we be true to one another in a world that has no love? Or truth. Or, yeah, or joy. <laughs> or not, I think about or anything. anything. <laughs> uh, nor light, nor certitude. Oh, that's beautiful. Nor peace. Nor help for pain. That's a good one because I mean, pain is there. There's no help for pain, right? <laughs> pretty. What causes him to think of that? <laughs> but the no, not certitude. It's really, it's really beautiful word for. Yeah, you look like the other. Yeah, well, I don't know what Yeah, no, I guess that's not.
France or England? It's a question of people or individuals. We've actually said couples. But it's a funny thing, because the let us is a let us. And the one another is a very funny way to say to me, you know, let, let us be let us each be treated. Let us be true would be enough, right? Um, but to one another is a way of saying two by saying, I would say it's a way of saying the same by saying the other. Does that make any sense? Why bring in the word other if you want to say true to something, right? Um, let, let you and I be true. How do you get the truth of yourself then? Because that would be beautiful, right? I could see it. I wish I had better reason to see it because um, there were a couple of things said about that. One, we have words being used in two senses, even though we have three, there are really two because there's this bowl of, bowl of C's. The two C's are physical C's, the other is the C of faith. So one another, us, is, would be said to be two different kinds of us's, right? The two of us and each of us, right? Why? Why? Why can us be more than one kind of us? Well, we would just be assimilating it to this pattern because of the one another. Not the same word, though. The pattern only works because of the repetition of the same word. Us is never repeated. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Screw you. Like, <laughs> 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 it's also switching between. <laughs> it's funny how the thing is right there, and I can't remember a word of it. Probably read a thousand. Then he goes from like we to us to you to I in various different places. Where's the you? Oh, you here. We, I, I only hear it's melancholy withdrawal. We, it's not we only hear it. But then it's the world that lies before that. Before us, yeah. Where does it exist that? Yeah. 
purchasing the implicit and the referral for remarkable. Not after that. Yes. Either way, the pattern works because the words are used, the same word is used, but with different meanings, very clear different meanings. We could try to argue that there are different us's here if we could look at the two uses of the word us here and say that they're used differently. Are they? Let's find out. I think they are. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, because one is, is um, after a preposition. Let us. Um, well, okay. And the other is. Before us. Right, the other is. Um, one of us is passive, the other is active. Is a verb, yeah. That's not the strongest reason to think no. so. No. Actually, um, yeah. the V is somewhat significant because the V doesn't just refer to him and whoever else is with him. You see, it implies Sophocles in that the use of we. Really? I think so. Sophocles only wrote it on a funeral, but when you find him of human misery, we find also in the terms of us. It seems like it's more than just the two of them. No question about that. If you want to analyze the difference between us and us, so the first us, let us be true to one another. Us is the active, let us, us is the thing that is being active to one another, one another is being passive. Second use of us, the world which seems to lie before us, the world is what's being active and us is being passive. That's the breakdown. Do with that what you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd rather do it with. Uh, active and passive. You mean grammatically active and passive? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I accept it as grammatical. But I don't want to introduce terms like active and passive unless we have some yeah. reason for it. Uh, yeah. Okay. I don't know the technical term for it in grammar, but there's a difference between, yeah, something like that. There's a difference in, in it grammatically. Yeah. Being true and not <laughs> it sounded like she was committing an axe murder or something. Yeah. What was the what what was the so see? Yeah, that sounded like a strange giggle. <laughs> what, what, what caused it? What did you see that you were? Uh, no, what she said. Oh, oh. She said she was very. Yeah, what you think she was saying? Lie, lie, lie. Yeah, it lies, 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 lies before us, and all 
I've always wanted the, the word various. It's kind of a strange thing to say. Right? The world seems to lot of forth like Atlanta's so beautiful, like you get so various. That's interesting. Right. It's, it's a nice word, I get it, but so new. But now actually we can see it because the eternal note. Right? It's the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the same misery all the time. I didn't know. Only seems to be new. That's a good line to remember, by the way. The world really does seem to lie before you, like a land of dreams, so beautiful, so various, so new. But no, actually, but it actually seems to have. Tremulous, right? Because it really, it really does ebb and flow, right? Right. That's the only one I could think of that I would say is misleading. Moon blanch, but the with the new blanch, only the new light. Terms. Those are very specific terms. Yeah. Well, I account for them. Yeah, they are specific terms. Um, what is it that it has me either love, no, I get joy, love, light, certitude, peace, help for pain, which they would have called sucker, surcease. Maybe they are biblical terms. I said to you, believe, and 
you will have joy, love, light, certitude, peace, and consolation. The Christian likes it a little. But, but that's a little bit too loose for me because lots of good words could be associated with, with the Christian. Yes. No, that's for sure. Tremulous certitude, misery, joy, tranquil, peace, pain. Maybe that breaks the pattern. Um, if, if that breaks the pattern, I'm not sure it does, but if it did, that would be another one of those occasions where you think there must be, oh, yeah. So if we could break, if we could set up a situation in which the thoughts are coming from, we'd have a different kind of look at it. I really like to do that. I don't like to think of punishment in situations, but I think this one might be indicative of a situation that is unspoken but indicated that is accounting for the flow of the thought. But I'm not, I can't make, I can't do it. It's a floating hypothesis. There is, there are pains are taken to give you a setting and characters, right? And lyric poetry doesn't have to do that. Right? Um, in a sense, what, what would you lose if the poem began? From the long light of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, there is heard the grating roar of pebbles. I know that that would destroy some of the beauty of the meteor, but you could get away with it. And then you could have the same thoughts preserved, but you've taken out the dramatic, so to speak, frame of it, uh, and the speaking of the voice speaking and the hearing, the person hearing it. And that, that would, so I'm just going to have to rethink the importance of those things. Not that I have any explanation for them. you wanted was just back and forth, you could do it, but in other words, you're trying to account for why those things are there despite the thing, what would happen if they weren't. Um, remember, he's also talking to her, so he, he's bringing his own sound into it, and that's another factor, or I'm saying her, because I That's what I'd be leaning towards, but again, I thought I picked other poets. That's not really established to the specificity in the situation that would give me the specificity that you that you're taking from him. I don't think it's there. I just don't think it's there. <laughs> that would be one reason why you wouldn't account for it. <laughs> that would be a very good reason. But let's let's I burn to that wire for a minute. Can you account for why it's there? Because it's a piece of the poem, right? And, and preference will always be given to the, to the explanation. 
the couch to the most, but the whole pretty much naked the whole of it. That's a, that's a formal principle in Title Mine and really that's what they feel for the rest of us. Well, I don't buy that either. <laughs> well, what do you got to do? <laughs> anything is going to offer a complacent? Moving and hearing, right? You're, you're saying we, we're somehow related. So what, what's heard? What's moving and what's heard in the poem? Uh, we see blah 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 blah, but also the voice of the speaker of the poem is being heard. Right? Because uh, he, as I say. Yeah. And of course, what you guys are commenting on about the commas and stuff is related to these sounds of the sentences, phrases according to the clauses. Right? The choice also goes back and forth. Um, and of course, the rhyme. You know, you haven't talked about the rhyme. No, it doesn't rhyme. You think it would rhyme with shore, right? But yeah, it does. Later on, it rhymes with shore. No, I think they all rhyme. I thought I had. I thought I saw one that didn't. But faith and breath are a rhyme, by the way. Um, not the best rhyme in the world, but that's that's a problem in English. They only have a couple rhymes with breath. The rhyme scheme is ebbing and flowing. It is. <laughs> How do you mean? It, it changes. <laughs> it's, not, it's not regular, yeah. It definitely seems regular. The question is does the rhyme scheme start off in one strict way? It does. It starts off as a quatrain, A, B, A, B. So clearly, the, the authors thought his theme changed as the poem was going. Like his thought in the beginning of the poem is different from his thought at the end of the poem. That's why I think the relation between the stanzas have to be accounted for by what he's thinking, not from what he just said. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why I was trying to get the dramatic situation and that's a kind of clue to his thought, but I, but I guess I can't do it. In a way, no, I can't. I do it. I can't do it. <laughs> so I want to do it. It's just not there. Yeah, there's always the possibility, the apodictically stated possibility <laughs> that it's not there. Yes.
Yeah, but... Yeah, you know, let's see if that works, actually. Um, the world. So the world occurs to him before he says, well, that would be nice. Let's see if that works. In other words, he says X at the end of the stanza, and then not as here at the beginning of the next stanza. Not necessarily the next word, but the, the thought. Let's see if that works. Northern Sea and Sea of Faith that we can get. Let's just simply say thought moves like sound. That would be okay to say that, right? Um, making shingles of the world. Then our love, let us be true to one another for the world. I know, big, like, the obvious. But obvious is what you want in a formal analysis, by the way. You don't want it to be subtle. But how do we do it in the first stanza, from the first to the second? How would you know what the it meant unless you read the stanza before? That's, yeah. Uh, that's good, that's good. I wish you were like the other ones, though, Sonic. That's the problem with it. Um, you know, I wish it was like the note of sadness meant some sort of S ending that would bring it in. Well, sadness, Sophocles. No. Fernandez is nodding at me because that's one way in which you would make a relation through sound in a poem, the consonants, the same way you use the rhymes. To, the rhymes are the terminal endings, but you can also make relations through the front end of the word. Right? It's not called rhyme, it's sometimes it's called something else, alliteration in this case. But alliteration is another property of words that poets can use to make relations. But he doesn't do it that often. A little glimmering gleam. When you get vowel sounds repeated like that, it's called assonance. Although, er, er is not the best example of an assonance. Sounds terrible. Um, glimmering and gleams. Full and fair. Straights and light. I know that doesn't sound so good, but it's a terminal ending that is, that is uh, similar. Again, begin. Then again, there'll be another one. That's a rhyme, but yeah, okay, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. So we don't need the dramatic situation to make the relation between the stanzas. Yes, because this is actually a little. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. Now I just know exactly what my old teachers would have done. They would take me the idea that plot is the soul of everything and made a plot out of this. 
There was a problem. When Aristotle says plot to soul tragedy, it just means the principle of unity. But it doesn't say that all unities are plot unities. <laughs> the, the tragedy is. So the principle of unity here might be the, 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 the sound thought nexus. It has nothing to do with the plot later on. I actually can't believe we didn't see that scene yet. It's really it's obvious. obvious. Now that we can see it. It is obvious now that we can see it. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a good example of something obvious being overlooked until it becomes obvious. Would we not create a plot or um, define a plot because there is none, or because to do so would be to take away from other important elements of the plot? Um, it's, a, it's, it's really a choice between two hypotheses or two lines of inquiry um, that have to be pursued. One would be that the Transitions of thought are suggested by the language. The other would be, and, and, and the other would be that transitions of thought are suggested by a situation that is depicted without being directly aligned. But it would be incumbent on both positions to account for the other. Right? Because you can't just split the problem and say it's one or the other. So if the plot position were there, I'd have to account for why that, why the words repeat. Sonic, I'd have to, have to account for why they would have come to the window and are all off. And that would be the choice between those hypotheses would depend on which one could adequately account for the whole part. Yes, I, I mean, I think that the The possibility of a third hypothesis that both are elements of the larger pattern of ebb and flow. It's actually the better hypothesis. Because it incorporates both, but also accounts for what he's saying. <laughs> you know, so you got to try to be as close to it as possible. Yeah, I think tremble is noted a really significant word because the tremble, the tremble of the note. The tremulousness of human relations in the aftermath of the end of faith that they only have themselves to base themselves on. Does that make sense? Because you know, but the sea of faith would give you all. I, I think I think it's true that the sea of faith faith would give you peace and joy and all those things, right? Uh, and help with pain. Where are you going to get them now? The sea of faith is gone. One another, right? The only place you can get it. But if the sea of faith was ebbing, <laughs> what about this? This is tremulous, right? It goes back and forth. It ebbs and flows. It's unreliable. Strange place to look for true, for certitude. Um, and because it doesn't have those things, you have to find it in the relationship with the other person. And that's asking a lot of a relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, one another. 
at this time the sea of faith had also been withdrawn Yeah. Yeah. It's thingy. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
something that goes around the waist. Girdle furled is is tightened. It's not open. It's clamped together, and, and you know. It's a, you know that's a strange line. Like the fold of a bright girdle furled. Right. It's untarnished. It's it's new and clean and and un still innocent and undone. And then it was raped and. <laughs> the most famous girdle in. Uh, the world was Aphrodite's. So Aphrodite wore one when she was not chaste. Well, her hers wasn't curled. <laughs> but it was bright. It was the famous bright girdle of, Ar of, Ar uh, of Aphrodite. And anyone who saw it fall over. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what a girdle furled looks like. Only I know for all well, of your girls have Unfurl that girl. <laughs> That's another line I don't recommend you. <laughs> Carry into the boudoir from this home. Lay, however, while we're on that subject, is the past tense of why. So that's another. I think it is anyway. Yes, lie in the sense of lying so before me. Not, not lying. Not lying, you lying. Why would you have brought that up then? Because we have lie in the poem. Yeah. Yep, so it's present and past. Yeah. Another example of it. He said, reaching into something. Um, I don't know what the bright. Lay like the fold of a bright girl furled is a problem because. I mean, I think it's, I'm not wanting to engage in a criticism of this for a second, or just for a second. The thing that you're comparing something to ought to be more clear than the thing that you're comparing it, than the thing you're comparing. In other words, if you want to make clear what the sea of fates was, you should compare it to something that's clearer than the idea of the sea of fates, right? Mm -hmm. But a bright girdle to furl, <laughs> for me anyway, not that thing. That's the problem. But that's um, a wrong formal, formal analysis because if you're talking about the context in the beginning, you are the context in that sense. That's we true. don't give a shit about you. <laughs> we don't care about what you, what you think about a great world. True. <laughs> that's exactly true. Which is why I preface it by saying, let me engage in a criticism. <laughs> I, I understand I was deviating from the method. Um, but yes, in general, you don't give a shit about you. <laughs> but I still know what a bright girl, and, and you're, you're correct in saying the answer to what it means would lie in the rest of the poem, but that's what I'm trying to, that's what I can't see is the problem. Are there other round things, things that go around? Then what, the girdle or? Yeah, then the girdle. Around the earth's shore. Ebb and flow is circular and cyclical. That's a thing. It's a stretch. Is it though? Yeah, because you're. you're it is. You're running a circle, but it's something that's not a circle. No. The, the bench of the, the bench has a disagreement. <laughs> Let's see. 
and why is it not a scrunch? Um, a wave is, is uh, a wave is a scrunch. There you go. Sinusoidal is what he means. Sine wave. Return again, then yes, Miss Cotton. What have you been on your phone? Um, well, us. we've been. Uh, I looked up the word um, pearl, like you get a better idea. Yes. Um, what we've been, um, or the way that I've been understanding the three lines, the sea of faith, blah, 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 pearl. Um, the way I've been understanding it, the sea of faith was once two at the full, and round Earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. However, um, it's possible that he meant to write the sea of faith was once two at the full um, and round and it lay round Worth's shore like the folds of a bright girdle furl. So the sea of faith is like the folds of a yes. bright girdle furl, right. and it is lying around round Earth's shore. Right. So yeah. Yeah, it, it, the sea of faith is what was like the girdle around yes. the Earth. Got it. But I don't, I don't, that still doesn't make it. It would go around. Buried yourself is to hide something around yourself. Furled around Earth. Furled. So it's like encompassing the. Yes. Earth. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why we're saying it had the uniting aspect of it. Right? It was around the whole Earth. Yes. Well, we were looking for a word that was like furled. Yeah, furled. The word that makes everything one. Right. Actually, um, I don't really know what it means to. I mean, I know what it means to furl an umbrella, but that's about the only thing I've ever furled. Furl is used um, in ships, which is interesting for the ship's sails. Sails when it's furled. Is the which is interesting because this is all about water. So, so it's in the turned around. It's rounding. In this context, in the context of the poem. Which is the only context that matters. It's the only thing we can infer from the word furled is that it is around the Earth's shore. That's good enough. That's it. And that's good enough. Yes. I don't have a problem with the idea of the whole waves being round thing or whatever, but we have to get it from the ebb and flow part of the I was having a disagreement. I think you get it from the wind speed thing that it goes Yeah, that's fine because it's there. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But, but that will definitely give you a cycle. <laughs> yeah, I guess what I, what I was trying to say, and then I was going outside, was 
chocolate wings that came back and now it's gone out again and we don't really appreciate it now. something to your mind that makes you feel like you're not on earth <laughs> like something about the architecture there like it just transports you <laughs> yes. it's the, the one um, where you take the center train all the way to the end but don't just get off the train and get back on you have to go up the escalator and down, or down. because then you have to go down the escalator <laughs> But however, I think it is Faith was never true. Yeah, kind of an illusion. Yeah, because he does that also by bringing in Sophocles. He's saying this, he he thought the same thing. He experienced the same circles. So really, the only thing true in this poem is Sophocles, because he's not doubting Sophocles. Well, we, we no, I guess yeah, well, but Sophocles just heard it, right? So it's and he hears it. Certainly, the only thing left to be true is, is the feeling. If you want another one, that seems to be the only thing that's over. Is it possible that there isn't a second person? He's just. I doubt it. That would make the whole thing just collapse entirely. Yeah. Because if you're looking for truth within yourself or something, yeah, it doesn't work. No, meaning, meaning, okay, there is the idea of a second person, but that, but that, that person isn't physically there. Come to the window. That's what I said. Look, in his mind, it still makes sense. What if he's a successive lover? <laughs> but, but what do what we, why should we give a shit about maybe? No, the, we're not. Oh. Okay, okay. I, I respect that, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth analyzing. It's worth bringing up and questioning and then analyzing in the context of the poem and the poem only. Well, I think the better way to do it would be, well, but it's dialogue, it's not dialogue, it's two, it's two parties, though. There's two, the grammar just requires another person to, to accept a command form. No, it just, it just, it's in the grammar. I see what you're saying. You have to, you 
you have to establish it. And not only that, you have to establish it, and then you have to show that you're capable of explaining more than specifically any other hypothesis. And that would make those go. I think the one another gets a little bit more specifically to, it's not just like this idea of us and you know, big sense, but one another means you are me. It's so qualified, you know, let us, right? I'm speaking for me. Let us. She doesn't say let us, or everybody doesn't say let us. I'm saying it. One party is saying it. Um, makes it conditional or optional or optative or not indicative, right? Um, one another cuts the us into two, you know, and that's another. And then the reason we have to do it is because the world is full of has nothing in it but has no love, right? So. It's, it's sort of hemmed in by a lot of And that there is the, uh, the sense of isolation in the eye, right? Which is another problem. And the fact that he really is, if, if he's not, if, he, if, if the connections are through his thinking that he's not stating, thoughts or the links that we're also sort of it's also isolated from them. I don't know, we have what's the time? Is that what's time to I guess that's close enough. Anyway, let me just conclude. That's sort of what the first day of a formal analysis looks like. <laughs> because we haven't pulled any of this together really. Um, but that just shows you how complicated something that doesn't look that complicated turns out to be. One of the things, good things about formal analysis when you actually do it is not the conclusion you come to, because the conclusions relatively are important, but you always see further the next time. It always happens. Um, one thing you learn is that uh, things are good, things are considered good because they really are good, uh, but they really kind of hold up to this kind of examination. Every word, every sound, every punctuation point is explored by the artist to make these meaning. And when you see that happen, you come to expect it of yourself. That's the big change in a formal analysis. That's what turns art students into artists and design students into designers. It's the expect self-expectation that everything is easy and level of perfection as masterworks. And that's the, that's the benefit of a formal analysis for the educational student. Um, so, uh, but anyway. Patterns, patterns, structures, but we have to pull it together, but that's what happens. We haven't said anything isn't obvious, right? But that was the point. The point of a formal analysis is everything is made, like Zettelmeyer said, directly perceptible, right? You don't want to go any further than what's directly perceptible and start making interpretations. Um, so when you actually look at it that way, you see just how much can be made perceptible. Without being seen, without seeming to be made anything at all, right? Uh, and that really is great. It's a great poem. We were talking, by the way, before we leave this, the touchdowns, you know, Matthew Arnold's system of touchdowns. I personally use that leap from the third to the fourth stanza as a touchdown. That's an amazing moment. That blank space is an amazing moment. And if something doesn't do that, then I begin to think maybe it isn't so good. And very little lives up to those that kind of level of touchdown. Uh, but that's my, one of my touchdowns. So I'm using him. Uh, 
a fairly recent poet. One of the things that the, and I'll, I'll let you go is that this was written in like 1860. Um, it's completely unlike any other English poet who'd written at that time. Uh, the, the, the intimacy that comes out with the come to the window thing is just not present in English poetry. You have it today in modern poetry, you do it all the time, but this is like a groundbreaking thing about it. And the same thing is true with the last stanza. That kind of thing is never there. And this occasion for a poem, which is no occasion, just standing at the window and thinking, it's something that didn't happen. It's an innovation in English poetry just to have a poem, a lyric poem, based on a moment, not on a story or on a big moment or something like that, just an interlude, right, an intimate interlude. And that's a big change in the history of, of poetry in English anyway. Um, and that's another reason to admire it. Formally, completely unprecedented, which is saying a lot, uh, in, at least nowadays, in the age of valued novelty, it has no, no precedent, and that's a big deal. It's great in a lot of ways. So next week we'll get the papers, and uh, we'll do a summary class, and then that will be that. Next week the papers do. I thought it was the week after. Next week. <laughs>